Welcome to the Thinking Leader Podcast, sponsored by Red Team Thinking. Bad leaders react, good leaders plan, and great leaders think. In each episode, we bring you new ideas and insights from some of the greatest business and thought leaders to help you think more deeply and lead more effectively so that you can be a great leader too. Here again is your host, best-selling author, speaker, and unconsultant, Bryce Hoffman. This is not Bryce Hoffman. The accent may be a giveaway. This is Marcus Dimbleby, Vice President of Red Team Thinking, coming live at you from London, UK. And today, I'm going to be the host, and our guest is going to be Bryce Hoffman. Welcome, Bryce. Hello, Marcus. You're turning the tables on me. It's about time, sir. I think it's been long overdue. Fabulous to be here chatting with you again. As always. So, why have we turned the tables today? You've introduced a lot of thought leaders, business executives, senior authors to many people during your podcast over the last eight months now with The Thinking Leader. But really, who are you? Who is Bryce Hoffman? Who is Bryce Hoffman? Well, I am, as uh, as the uh, introduction to the podcast says, I'm a best-selling business author, recovering journalist. I was a business journalist for more than 20 years, and I am what I like to call an unconsultant. I teach business leaders, government leaders, military leaders, how to make better decisions in today's complex world. That's what I do. I'm the president of Red Team Thinking, and I am the host of this podcast, The Thinking Leader. Not today, sir. Not today. Fabulous. <laughs> so the president of Red Team Thinking, that, that sounds very interesting. So can you explain to me what is Red Team Thinking? So Red Team Thinking is a cognitive capability that engages critical thinking, enables distributed decision-making, and encourages diversity of thought. It's a set of tools and techniques that help people do these things, to help people think critically, to help them overcome groupthink, to help them think outside the box. But it's also a mindset. It's a way of looking at not just the world, but your organization, your, your organization within the world and recognizing, and this is really important, recognizing that you never have fully solved the puzzle, recognizing that you can always do better, that you can always find a way to do what you do better, that there's always room for improvement. And that's an important thing because if you don't do that, if you stop doing that, a competitor, an adversary, somebody outside your organization will figure out how to do that to you. So red team thinking comes from a methodology called decision support red teaming. And decision support red teaming was developed by the military and intelligence community in the United States after 9-11. Because two things happened after 9-11. First is almost immediately, in the intelligence community, in the CIA, there was a recognition that we had suffered from what Director George Tennant would later call a colossal failure of imagination. What do you mean by that failure of imagination? He meant that the CIA and the other intelligence agencies in the United States had all the information they needed to figure out that the U.S. was about to be attacked, that it was about to be attacked by Osama bin Laden, that it was about to be attacked with airplanes, and that those planes would target New York and Washington. Yet despite that, 
And because of that failure of imagination, the CIA and the other intelligence agencies were unable to connect the dots until the terrorist connected them for them. So, as I said, two things happened as a result of that. The first thing that happened was early in the wee hours of September 12th, 2001, while they were still pulling people from the ruins of the World Trade Center in the Pentagon, CIA Director Tennant activated a group within the CIA called the Red Cell. And he tasked the Red Cell with challenging deliberately and intentionally the prevailing thinking, the prevailing wisdom of the Central Intelligence Agency. And over time, the Red Cell developed a really powerful array of tools to do that in a very intentional way. Now, obviously, the work of the Red Cell is very classified, but there's a couple of things that we can say about it. One is, and the CIA says this publicly on their website, the Red Cell is directly responsible for having prevented at least half a dozen major terrorist attacks on the United States since 9-11 that would have been equal to or bigger than the 9-11 terrorist attacks. The other thing that the Red Cell did and does is shortly after it was stood up, it began producing what was called the Alternative Intelligence Assessment. So every day, as some people may know, the President of the United States receives a little black folder that's the Daily Intelligence Briefing. And it says, in essence, Mr. President, here is all of the intelligence that U.S. spy agencies have collected over the past 24 hours. Here are the highlights. Here are the important developments that we've identified in the world. Here's what we think they mean. And here are some options that you may wish to consider. The alternative intelligence assessment is a one sheet that was slipped in at the end of that folder. And it basically says, Mr. President, everything you just read may be wrong. We may be drawing the wrong conclusions from this information. Here are some other ways that you could interpret this information. And if those are correct, here are some other options you may wish to consider. Now, it's worth noting that both President Bush and President Obama said publicly that they found this alternative intelligence briefing to be one of the most important things that they looked at every day. President Trump said he found it to be confusing and asked it to be removed from his uh, daily briefing, but the CIA kept at it. They used it internally. They put it back now that uh, Biden is president. And this has become a very powerful model, I think, for an organization recognizing the limits of its thinking, recognizing that no matter how successful it is, it could still be wrong and therefore continuing to challenge its own thinking in a deliberate way. Now, the other thing that happened after 9-11, obviously, is we invaded Iraq and Afghanistan. And originally, it seemed like those were going pretty well from the U.S.'s perspective, at least, maybe not from the Iraqis' perspective. But then very quickly, actually, the wheels started to come off in Iraq. So by the end of 2003, the insurgency had begun. And it was becoming very clear to the more far-looking military planners that we were in trouble and we were going to be in trouble for some time. It also became clear that we had created this problem ourselves by not challenging some of our basic assumptions, by not thinking through the consequences of our actions, and by not 
again, being able to imagine all of the possibilities and what could go wrong while there was still time to stop it from going wrong. So as a result of this, the head of the army was replaced. A fabulous general, General Peter Schumacher, was brought out of retirement to become the army chief of staff. And one of the first things that General Schumacher did was to recognize that as important as it was to try to deal with the problems that were going on in Iraq and Afghanistan right now, it was at least as important to make sure that we didn't make mistakes like this. It was at least as important to make sure we didn't make the same sort of mistakes again. And so to do that, he created a lessons learned team at the Pentagon to make recommendations on how we could do better. How could we avoid that in the future? And one of the key recommendations was to create what became termed as decision support red teaming, creating a group of highly trained officers within each echelon of the army whose job would be to take the plans, the strategies, and the decisions that that group was making and deliberately challenge them, not only to find out if there were flaws in them or potential problems or potential points of failure, but also, and just as importantly, to figure out if there were better options that had not been considered, if there were better ways to do what needed to be done and to fully comprehend the impact of these decisions, not just on the immediate situation, but on the long-term success of the mission. Now, to enable that, a school was set up at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas at the Command and General Staff College, cryptically called the University of Foreign Military and Cultural Studies. That was an attempt to deceive America's adversaries about its real purpose. It was known informally as Red Team University. And beginning in the mid-2000s, they began to train cadres of officers to be Red Teamers and Red Team leaders to do this mission. And it was so successful. It was so immediately successful that other nations started asking if they could send their officers to Fort Leavenworth to be trained in these tools and techniques as well. So Britain was one of the first to ask if they could learn these tools and techniques and ultimately stood up their own red teaming program at MOD Shrivenham. The Canadians, the Australians, New Zealand, NATO, pretty much every Western military and many Western intelligence agencies rapidly adopted decision support red teaming and began using it with great, great success. So when I heard about this methodology of red team thinking, I thought, wow, imagine if we could do the same thing with business. Imagine if we could have the same sort of applied critical thinking and groupthink mitigation in business. How powerful would that be? And I started thinking of all these different scenarios in the past, colossal business failures that could have been averted huge missed opportunities that could have not been missed, but seized if this sort of critical thinking approach was used. And I'll give you one example. I had spent many years covering the American automobile industry. And when I heard about red teaming, one of my first thoughts was, wow, what if the American automakers had had a red team back in the early 1970s when the Japanese began importing cars to the United States in earnest? 
And instead of guffawing about these tiny little econo boxes from Japan that no self-respecting American would ever buy or drive, a group within Ford, within General Motors, within Chrysler had said, what if we're wrong though? What if people do want smaller, more economical cars? What if that is exactly what the market wants? What if that is exactly what Americans want? What is our plan? What are we going to do about it? How much better off would Detroit have been if it had simply spent a little time thinking about that possibility, preparing for that possibility, having a contingency plan to deal with that possibility? And that's just one example. You know, you think about, about some of these other high-profile stories, Xerox inventing all the pieces of the com personal computer revolution and yet failing to capitalize on them because they imagined that they were a copier company rather than a computer company. Palm, which convinced us all that we needed to have a computer in our pockets, yet somehow entirely missed the point of smartphones when they arrived and got left behind by history as a result. So many examples. So thinking about this, I, I called up the Pentagon and asked if I could go and audit the course for red team leaders at Fort Leavenworth. And they said, who the heck do you think you are? I said, I'm a best-selling author. Repeated, who the heck do you think you are? Well, who I am is very persistent. And so I kept knocking on doors and ultimately took about six months. I finally got permission to go to Fort Leavenworth, beautiful Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. And I spent the first half of 2015 there learning how to be a red team leader, going through the entire red team leader course the first and only civilian from outside government to go through the red team leader course because the school was shut down uh, at the beginning of this year. And what I learned there was even more powerful than I had imagined. What I learned there was this array of tools and techniques that could fundamentally transform the way people make decisions in high pressure, high stakes, complex operating environments, which is the operating environments that we find ourselves in as business leaders increasingly today, even before the pandemic, certainly after the pandemic. So taking what I learned there, I began working with companies around the world to port these ideas to business. And in 2017, I published the book Red Team. And Red Teaming was designed to be a handbook to teach companies how to use this decision support red teaming methodology to challenge their assumptions, to stress test their strategies, to identify missed opportunities or better ways of doing things, and to make better decisions in today's complex world. Fascinating. Wow. Where do I begin on that? So my background, ex-military, so I'm aware of red teaming from more of a wargaming perspective. You know, what's the enemy doing, the red guys and where the, the blue guys but this concept of this decision support thing that came out of 9-11, I think is just phen phenomenal. And for me, the key word that I picked out, you kept saying it was options, optionality. And just as you said then, you know, this, this complex adaptive space we're working in today is as equally complex as the military find themselves in operations. And there's that saying, you know, business is combat. I think that's never becoming more prevalent. Obviously, the outcome is very different. But the complexity and the issues that people are facing you need this sort of capability, this decision-making capacity that we have to enable 
to become quicker, more effective. And these tools and techniques you talk about seem to be just what the doctor ordered, you know, clearly evolved through the military. And I think it's fascinating to see as well how much how much military stuff moves into the boardroom. And we've seen VUCA, you know, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity, came from the 1980s war college used around in the business boardrooms of today and getting this red teaming concept into there, I think is absolutely paramount. So we started off with red team thinking, talked about the red teaming university, and then your book, which I've read many times, is called Red Teaming. So is there a difference between the two? Or is that just a play on words? Or explain that one to me. Excellent question, Marcus. There is a difference. And it's an important difference. So let me start by saying that I believe in eating my own dog food. And if you're going to teach leaders to consistently challenge their own thinking, you have to be prepared to consistently challenge your thinking as well. So the book came out in 2017 and I launched my company, Red Team Thinking in 2017 with the mission of teaching companies how to implement this red teaming methodology that was developed by the intelligence agencies in the military. And it worked. We were able to train a lot of people in these tools and techniques. They were able to use them with great success. We had clients that told us that using these tools and techniques had literally saved them hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. But we also saw that this formal decision support red teaming model created its own challenges. It created political challenges in organizations because who owns the red team could become a real contentious point. It could become a a, a political football within an organization. It created logistical challenges because it takes time to train people as red teamers and red team leaders. And then it takes time for them to do this formal red teaming. And there really isn't a company, really isn't an organization, it turns out, because the army even had this epiphany after, after I graduated from UFMCS there isn't an organization that has the bandwidth today to have people's full-time job being red teamers, particularly because the people who you want doing this, if you're doing formal red teaming, are the best and brightest people within your organization. So for instance, I was working with one of the big Wall Street banks back, I think it was 2018. And we were trying to, we'd done a program that was very successful they said, we want more of this. I said, great. Here's what our training program looks like. They said, this is a real problem. It's going to cost us too much. I said, well, I think our pricing is reasonable. They said, it's not your pricing. It's the fact that the people that we would want to put through this training are literally making millions of dollars for this bank every single day. So if we put them through this extensive training program and then make them part-time red teamers so they're not doing their regular job part of every month, but doing red teaming, we're going to be losing tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. Now, I hadn't thought about that. That got me thinking. And experiences like that made me realize that there has to be a better way to do this. 
there has to be a simpler way to do this. There has to be a faster way to do this so that it doesn't slow down decision-making in a world in which you have to make rapid decisions every single day. So we evolved red teaming into what we call red team thinking. And the difference is, is that red team thinking does not rely on a standing red team. It doesn't re rely on a separate group of people to challenge the work of the team that developed a plan, strategy, or option in the first place. Rather, what red team thinking does is provide training to everybody who's involved in developing strategy, making decisions, and giving them these tools and techniques in a way that they can use them either individually or as part of small ad hoc groups when necessary. And that allows red teaming to become simply part of the decision-making practice at an organization. Now I use that term practice intentionally because most organizations, good organizations at least, have decision-making processes. Bad organizations have no process at all. They simply react. Good organizations have decision-making processes. But the best organizations recognize that decision-making should be a practice. What do I mean by a decision-making practice? Well, a process is a series of steps. We do step one, step two, step three, step four, and then we make a decision. The problem with processes is that even if they start out being really good, over time, they simply become checklist. They simply become like morning calisthenics that you do not because you want to, because you see the value in them, but because you have to. And that diminishes the rigor and you end up losing the, the benefits of having this good process in the first place. A practice, on the other hand, is something that you do every day. Think about yoga as an example. You don't do yoga because it's going to help you today, even though it might. You do yoga because if you do yoga consistently, it helps you every day. It helps you in a number of ways. It makes you more flexible. It makes you more mentally calm, mentally focused. It de-stresses you, has all these virtues that build on each other and get better and better over time the more you practice them. So we have now approached red teaming in the same way, by teaching people these tools in a way that is simple and easy to understand and that they can use every day, these tools become like mental muscle memory so that the more you use them, the less formally you have to use them because you start training your brain to think critically, to listen to disconfirming evidence, to listen to other perspectives. And if you have the time and if the plan or the strategy or the decision is important enough, you can get a group of people together and very quickly use these tools in an ad hoc group so that you get a diversity of thought, so that you get people who see what you may have missed, so that you can hear the best ideas, even if they didn't come from you, and quickly make a decision in which the best idea wins, regardless of where it comes from within your organization. And doing this enables something that a lot of companies want today, a lot of organizations want today. In the military, they call it off-tracks tactic or mission tactics or mission command, which is driving decision-making down to the lowest echelon possible, because that's how you deal with a rapidly changing complex environment. In business, they call it distributed decision-making. And everybody says they want it, but nobody has the tools to do it. Red team thinking 
provides the tools to do it. Everybody says they want diversity and inclusion and they take steps to do that, to create diversity and inclusion, but then they don't listen to the people who they use to fill positions that are designed to show how diverse and inclusive they are. If you don't listen to people, you're not including them and you're not getting a diversity of thought, which is really what you're looking for. So again, red team thinking enables that. So that's what red team thinking is. That's what we've evolved red teaming to. That's why we call the company red team thinking. Wow. Okay. Lots to take in there. So what this evolution has really brought to the table is that you've got, without having a red team, you've got everybody thinking like a red teamer distributed throughout your organization. So again, you're going away from this layer at a probably top tier position where they're making decisions. And as you said, that's the sort of potential to come toxic, to become the red police, which we know in organizations, especially in business, internal politics, careerism, that's quite a big bat people could start to use and beat their way through the career path with it. And I, I just love this capability where we're given this cascade effect almost of that decision-making responsibility. We're devolving that down to the organization where sensible by training these individuals with these tools and techniques. And it also sounds like it's an ideal capability for innovation, which in this day and age, if you're not innovating, you, you, you're dead. You know, your, your organization is dead because of the state of the environment operating around us. We have to keep moving and constantly innovating and adapting. And I think it sounds like with individuals understanding that and enabled to do it, because as you talked about diversity, inclusion, empowerment, all these great buzzwords, Everyone knows why we need these things. Everyone knows what they all are, but people struggle. And I know because I've been in industry now for eight years, people struggle with the how to enable that. The intent is there. Everybody wants it. The cold face is crying out for it. The executive are trying to make it happen, but the how isn't just happening. There seems to be something missing. And it sounds like this is a capability that could bring that to the forefront. Well, it is. And I'm going to, I'm going to, share something that I learned from you, because I think it really sums this up, Marcus, which is that as you've told me, because you, your expertise in this is in this area of agile and business transformation. And what you've told me is that these new ways of working need new ways of thinking. And I yeah. thought that was so powerful. New ways of working don't work without new ways of thinking. You can't use these tools to the full effect that they're intended if you're still thinking the same way you were as a leader, as a company back in the 20th century. And look at how many business transformations fail. Over 70% of business transformations fail. Why? Because people aren't changing the way they're thinking. They're not transforming their thinking. They're putting in new processes that may be great, but they're trying to then pound the square peg into the round hole. And it doesn't work as we all learn back in preschool, hopefully. So red team thinking is designed to provide those new ways of thinking. It's designed to help people think differently about their businesses and to, and to, and to reclaim the role of thinker because that's, that's the thing. Too many leaders, too many businesses, too many organizations have decided to outsource thinking. They've decided to bring in expensive, high-priced consultants to do the job of thinking that they should be doing themselves. I think back to one of the most powerful stories that I remember from my mentor, Alan Mulally. When he started at Ford Motor Company, his first day on the job, he held a town hall meeting with several 
hundred senior employees at Ford's world headquarters in Dearborn. And during that meeting, a member of the corporate strategy team stood up during the Q and a and said, I understand from what you said that there's going to be big changes that we're going to have to rethink the way that we work as a company globally in order to save Ford motor company. So I'm assuming from that, that that means there's going to be a greatly expanded role for us in corporate strategy, right? We're going to, we're going to have a seat at the table. We're going to become front and center to this transformation. And Alan smiled at her. He he said, you know, I, I always wonder about this corporate strategy function because, and he pointed at the front row of the auditorium. And in that front row was Ford C-suite, the chief financial officer, the head of manufacturing, the head of each of Ford's business units, the president of Ford America, the president of Ford of Europe, the president of Ford of Asia, all the senior leaders of the company. He waved his hand over the, the front row and he said, it's our job to develop strategy. It's our job to find the way forward. That's why we get paid so much money. It's our job. What he was saying is it's our job to think our way through these problems, not to to put that on subordinates. Those subordinates can support us and help us do that. And certainly not to hand that over to a big consulting company to do for us because we don't have the confidence or the tools to do it ourselves or because we're too lazy to do it ourselves. So that is what red team thinking is designed to do is help people reclaim the role of thinkers to think for themselves, to think for their organizations. You're damn right. I mean, Alan was on the money with that whole perception of how we thought it needed to be, you know, to be dealt with in Ford at that time. And I think, as you said, bringing in consultants, they don't have the answers. And I think the problem we're seeing today, moving from that sort of 20th century leadership mentality to today, is that people still think they have to have the answer when they're at the top. And A, you don't, and B, you can't. It is so complex and fast moving now, it's beyond the wit of an individual. Even a C-suite is often going to struggle. And when you look at this, and we all know this, nine out of 10 times, the answer lies within your organization. And if it doesn't, then those within your organization will be able to find where it is. But if you don't enable them, if you don't source the wisdom of the crowd, those, I call it the dormant superhero, all those people in your organization are passionate, they care, they're intelligent, you've employed them for all those reasons. But if you don't unleash them to work to their maximum capacity to bring their A game every day, then you're not going to get the output and the outcomes that are fully capable of the organization if you unleashed it. And I think that's what a lot of executives today in these positions of authority and in charge are really struggling to come to grips with. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm sure that a lot of people listening to this right now have found themselves sitting in a meeting, knowing exactly what needs to be said, knowing exactly what their organization needs to do to deal with the problem that it's facing, to deal with the opportunity, to take advantage of the opportunity that it finds itself with, to move forward. And yet, They've bit their tongue. They've kept their mouth shut because they know that if they speak up, they're just going to get swatted down. They know that their input is not welcome. They know that the decision has already been made. And that's a horrible place to find yourself in. It's a horrible place to find yourself in. Some of our listeners are leaders who have found themselves 
agonizing over what the right thing to do is for their organization, knowing in their heart that, as you said, Marcus, the answers lie within their organizations, but not knowing how to find them. You know, I'll tell a short story. There was there's a great story in the Army red teaming community about a four-star general. Four-star general is currently the highest ranking general there is in, in the U.S. Army. And as you know, because you're a former RAF officer, when you get promoted in the military as an officer, you have a pinning on ceremony where a, a more senior officer pins on your new rank insignia. But because there is no higher rank currently in the U.S. Army than four-star general, this general when he became promoted to four-star, had another four-star general pin his four-star on. And as he pinned his four-star on, he pulled him close and he whispered in his ear and said, congratulations, nobody is ever going to tell you the truth again. And that is the exact situation that so many business leaders find themselves in when they get to the top of the house. They know that there are problems. They know that there are opportunities that are not being taken advantage of, but they don't know how to get people to tell them what's really going on. And red team thinking is how you get at the truths that reside within your organization. Red team thinking is how you learn how to constructively and collegially challenge your organization's thinking if you're not at the top of the house so that you can raise those ideas without committing career suicide. So that's why I think this is such an essential thing in business today both for senior leaders and for people a few layers down, people who see what needs to be done, but don't know how to, how to make it happen. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I've witnessed that. You call it the rose-tinted reporting. <laughs> you, you can't pass the bad news upwards. So even if you do have an executive group who want to hear it, who want to help, and I had this in both the military and in business, by the time that information cascades back up, where they are it's gone through so many filters and the people passing that up are concerned about their career not wanting to relay the bad information that they get all the good news and they think everything's going great at the coalface and then you get down you know eventually to the front line and find out it's not we call it watermelon reporting green on the outside and then the last minute it suddenly becomes red and we know that's <laughs> devastating impact on that but i think if you've got this capability where people and the reason why people don't speak up psychological safety they don't have the ability to put their head above the parapet. There's fear in many organizations. People have got, you know, commitments. We've got mortgages, families, careers to consider. And we know how impactful it can be if you put your, if you put your neck out there. And we've seen it happen to other people around us when we do this. So we, we become sheep-like passivity and mediocrity is often the norm we see in many organizations. And that's really unfortunate. But I think if you have this capability... And it's led by the top. That's the thing with this. It sounds like you have to have this commitment and will to enable this and then cascade it down to get the goods to come back up. And you get this cycle then of flowing information that's clear, truthful. And hey, if it's bad news, that's okay. Because we also come up with plans and options and recommendations of how to deal with it. Whereas if you don't do that, then the blood news arrives quickly. And then as you said, you're into react mode because that's all you can do. You spiraled into chaos, which if you'd been thinking, you could have prevented that. Absolutely. And you know, you and I have worked with so many different companies, so many different organizations around the world, and you've seen what happens when you get a courageous leader who says to their team, right, 
we're not going to use the same old thinking. We're going to embrace this, this new way of thinking because I want to hear what you have to say. I want to hear your ideas. I want to hear what we're doing wrong. I want to hear what we could be doing better. Here's how we're going to do it in a constructive and collegial way. So it's not just a free for all. We're going to invest in your training so that you can do this. But more importantly, I'm going to listen to what you have to say after you learn how to use these tools. And we've seen what happens when we do this with companies. It's transformative. We get, we get CEOs, we get senior executives calling up and telling us, my gosh, my team has just been inundating me with great ideas. They're so much, they're smiling. They're so much more engaged. I, I don't know how this is possible. The thing I always say is I know how it's possible is because you're listening to them because people want to feel heard. People want to feel, people desperately want their companies to succeed. It's just that too often they don't feel like they have a voice. They don't feel like they have a way to, to steer the ship away from the iceberg. When I covered Ford Motor Company, Bill Ford, the chairman of Ford Motor Company used to complain to me about the leaks that, that I used to get from senior people in his company who would give me really, really sensitive information about what was going wrong inside Ford Motor Company. And I remember one morning he called me up after someone had given me the financial report for Jaguar and Land Rover, which Ford owned at the time, which were Jaguar was doing horribly. And he was furious. And he said, why do they hate us so much? I said, they don't hate you, Bill. They love you. He was like, yeah, they love me so much that they're, that they're giving you this incredibly damaging financial report. I said, no, Bill, the reason they're giving us this incredibly damaging financial report is because these people have been trying for years to say, this is what's wrong. This is why Jaguar is continuing to hemorrhage cash. This is why it's not contributing to the success of Ford Motor Company. Here's how we could fix it. And no one's listening to them. No one wants to hear it. They're being told to shut up. And they've been told to shut up so many times that they've said, right, if no one's going to listen to me, I'm going to force them to listen to me. And here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to leak this financial report to the Detroit News. Now, here's the amazing thing. After Alan Mulally started at Ford Motor Company, I stopped getting leaks. I stopped getting those documents. I stopped getting that information. Within six months, the well dried up completely. Why? Because now these people knew that the CEO was listening to them. Now these people knew that there was someone at the top of the house who wanted to change how things were working. Now they knew that there was someone at the top of the house who wanted to do things different, who wanted to get the ship moving away from the iceberg, that wanted to plot a better course to a better future and was willing and encouraging them to share their best ideas. And I started getting emails instead from employees saying, you'll never believe what happened to me today. I'm an engineer and I sent an email to Alan Mulally and I said, sir, there's, there's a problem with the way we're doing this thing. We could be so much more efficient. We could streamline and save money, save manufacturing complexity. And you know what happened? An hour later, I got an email back from Alan saying, that's amazing. I'm an engineer too. Will you come up to my office this afternoon, bring your schematics and show me what you mean? And I went up there and I rolled out my, my, my schematics on his desk and I showed him and he, he said, you're absolutely right. And he just put me in charge of a task force to implement these changes. I started getting calls and emails from people like that. 
instead of calls and emails from people saying, hey, here's what's really going wrong. So that's the proof. That's the proof that this really works, that people want to be heard. They want to be empowered, not with words, not with, you know, a lot of talk about psychological safety, but but in meaningful ways that actually create psychological safety, that create the change, that give them an opportunity to help shape the future of their organizations. Yeah, that's that's a great story. And there's a name for those people, and they're called dissenters. I'm a big fan of Dr. Daniel Kahneman, listening to recent podcasts, and someone said, what do organizations need to do, Daniel? And he said, you have to protect your dissenters. And most people see dissenters as as the cynics, the naysayers, but they're not. And I was chatting with an executive recently about this. Oh, we've got too many dissenters. And I just said, dissenters are invariably the most loyal, passionate, frustrated, and capable members of your organization. And if you don't listen to them, they will either do as the guys at Ford did, go out of town and give other people the information, or they'll go to the press, or they'll go to your competitors, or they'll go quiet. And it's when they go quiet, you need to be worried because you're either just going to get a mediocre output or they're going to leave. And normally when they go quiet, it's not long before you start to see the churn rate increase and HR starts knocking on your door going, everybody's leaving because you're not listening to them. And I think that's the most powerful thing that Alan did is put the people first. Absolutely. And I love that you brought up Kahneman because as you know, I'm a huge fan of Kahneman as well. And and Kahneman's work, in fact, underlies a lot of red teaming and red team thinking. The army folks who develop decision support red teaming spent a lot of time studying his research and the research of other cognitive psychologists to, to develop these tools. I had the opportunity when I was writing my book to, to sit down with him and to talk about red teaming with him, to bounce these ideas off of him. And it's really interesting because, you know, I, I, we were having breakfast at, at this nice little cafe near, uh, near uh, NYU. And uh, I was explaining what red teaming was, what some of these tools and techniques were. And I said, what do you think, Dr. Kahneman? Do you think that this, this will work? Do you think that these tools can overcome some of the cognitive biases and, and heuristics that you and, and Amos Tversky and others have identified? And he said, yeah, I, I think that they could. He said, you're going to have the same problem that every other consultant has, which is if your clients don't like the results of a red teaming analysis, if they don't like the findings, if it goes against what they want to do, they're simply going to dismiss it and say, well, they don't understand our business. They don't, they're not in the trenches with us. They don't understand our industry and they'll ignore it. And I said, but that's not going to happen. He said, what do you mean it's not going to happen? He said, I have a Nobel prize and it happens to me all the time. I said, it's not going to happen because we're never going to tell them the answer. We're never going to tell them. We're never going to red team for them. We're never going to do a red teaming analysis of their plan, their strategy, their decision, the proposal, and say, here's what's wrong with it. Here's something you missed. Here's a better way of doing it. No, we're going to teach them how to do this themselves. The most we'll do, if they don't have the time or the inclination to learn how to do it themselves, is we'll lead them through a red teaming exercise. But they'll do the work. They'll provide the answers, not us. So that when these tools surface options they haven't considered, when these tools surface problems they haven't considered, they'll have to deal with them because they're the ones who surface them, not 
not me, not Bryce Hoffman, not Marcus Dimbleby, not Red Team Thinking. And he said, that could work. <laughs> now, if anyone who knows uh, who knows Dr. Kahneman knows that he's a, a fairly pessimistic guy. So I took that as a, as, a, as a ringing endorsement of Red Team Thinking. Yeah, that's, that's a result when you get that from Dr. Kahneman, isn't it? And again, when you do that, the word again that comes out to me is ownership. By people being engaged and surfacing these issues and recommendations and problems and suggestions themselves, they take ownership. And when you've got ownership for something, you start getting the engagement back in the game, which is what you need to achieve. And therefore, if you're, as you said, outsourcing this to consultants to come in and do this for you, the minute they come in, your workforce become disengaged because they're being asked the questions that they know the answers to, but you chose not to ask them. Whereas if you enable them with these tools and techniques that are very simple with immediate efficacy, that they can do themselves and surface the things that they could never see before and you could never see. But by looking at these things together holistically and bringing in the different elements of the business so you get diversity of thought, then whatever they find, it's inarguable. It's not what well, Hoffman said or Marcus found. You found this, so you've got to now deal with it. Because once it's out, you can't put it back because you know it's there. The skeletons don't go back in the cupboard when you open it. And I think that taking of the ownership is the biggest thing that an organization can achieve is enabling your people to do that, to engage through that medium. And if you do that, you're off to the races. You're, you're letting go of the reins from the top and that devolved empowerment and decision-making just starts to happen on its own. It's almost that virtuous circle instead of the vicious toxic circle we often see. Right. And you've seen that. I mean, it, it is a, a virtuous circle and it does build on itself. And so you get people saying, wow, okay, this really works in the sense that I said, here's how we could do this better. And people listen to me and we're actually doing that. And now people feel encouraged to speak up beyond that. You know, I'll, I'll tell you that our first big corporate client, one of the biggest companies in the world, I won't say their name for, for confidentiality reasons. One of the coolest things about working with them, and this was back when we were still teaching this formal red teaming model. So we were training intensively these small cadres of, of red team leaders and red teamers within their organization. I was having lunch with one of their vice presidents who had nothing to do with the part of the company that we were working in, had nothing to do with the red team, but like all the other senior executives knew that this was going on, knew about this mindset that was starting to, to develop about constructively challenging the organization's thinking and told me, I think it's great. You're training this red team, but the thing that's even better is that because our CEO has told everyone that you're training this red team, and because people are starting to hear about the work this red team is doing, you've given permission to people all throughout the company to start suggesting different ways of looking at things, to start suggesting ideas they've been sitting on and afraid to share, to start saying, hey, you know, there's a problem with what we're doing. Here's the solution. And now that's leading to some very powerful conversations across the company that have nothing to do with the formal red teaming process. That was one of the things that led me to think, wow, maybe there's a better way of doing this. Maybe 
rather than, than doing this intensive training for a small group of people, it'd be better to get a little bit of training for a lot of people throughout the organization to foster that sort of critical thinking, that sort of outside the box thinking to encourage people to speak up and to encourage leaders to listen. Because it's, it's a two-way street, like you said, Marcus. It's a two-way street. People have to have the courage to speak up. Leaders have to have the courage to listen because that also is an act of courage. It's not abdicating your authority as a leader to listen. That's the mistake that a lot of people make. They think, well, if I listen to, to what my subordinates have to say, then I'm, I'm not a real leader. I'm, I, I look weak. I'm not, make, I'm not the decider. That's not true. You look strong because you are now considering the problem in a much more three-dimensional way. You're considering different viewpoints. You're still the decider. You're still the one that's going to make the decision at the end of the day, but now you're going to make a better decision. And you're also going to make it clear to your team that you value their input in the decision-making process, but you're still the decider. That's the cool thing about this. Oh, oh, I know. I know. I'm just thinking, you know, there's these leaders, executives out there and they've got a problem and they think they know the answer. And they walk into their team's room and go, right, everybody, here's what we're facing. and Here's what I want us all to do. The minute they say that, you've lost half the room. And half of them are thinking, that's the wrong idea. That won't work. And do they put their hand up? Do they speak up? No. They'll be messaging each other on WhatsApp after work. They'll be talking about you the minute you walk out the room. And therefore, you've, again, disengaged people by that one action. And you probably walked in there not sure of the answer yourself, but as you said, Bryce, they think they have to know. It's perceived that you as the leader need to know, and you don't have to anymore. This is the part of it, is that it's this humility. It's being humble and vulnerable is going to get you far more kudos by walking and going, hey, team, there's this problem. You probably all heard of it by now, but if not, let me lay it out for you. And you know what? I've just come out of the C-suite. We have no idea how to deal with this. And you know what the CEO said? And I agreed. He said, hey, we know someone who does, and that's you guys. So let's get together on this. Let's work out what we think. I want to hear everybody's input. And I think together we're going to come out with the right suggestion and the way forward. But I can't do this without you. How does that sound? I hate to keep coming back to, to Alan, but he's such, a, he's such a model of this type of leadership. One of the things that he taught me, told me it was one of his personal mantras, is seek understanding before seeking to be understood. Seek understanding before seeking to be understood. As a leader, seek mm -hmm. understanding before seeking to be understood, which means to listen, to assess the problem, to understand it, and then to say to your team, right, I've heard you, and this is what I think the best way forward is based on all of the input you've provided. That's leadership, that's real leadership. My grandma used to say to me when I was little, you've got two ears and one mouth. Talk less, <laughs> listen more. And she was Absolutely. right. Absolutely. You know, she was right. That's what leaders need to do now is listen, especially in this complex world we live in. So many moving parts, so fast. And things are changing. And it goes back to this decision making. It has to be iterative. Yes. Because you make a decision today and formulate a plan. You can't make that stand because tomorrow everything you made today could be completely wrong. And that's okay. It's not that you were wrong when you made it, but things have changed. And if you stick doggedly to that decision, no, carry on, go ahead with a plan, you're going to go off a cliff. Whereas if you're 
clear that you can make a decision today and iterate tomorrow. And if you bake in this optionality with your planning and devolve it, then again, people aren't going into paralysis when things go wrong. They're not waiting to say, mother, may I get another leadership decision that's going to take another week, a month. They're responding, not reacting, because they're thinking. And then when these things happen, they've got an indicator of warning and they implement overdrive and move to plan B without even telling you. It just happens. And you don't need to know because you know they'll do what needs to get done. And you'll just get an update saying, hey, yeah, we're still on track. They may have meandered through A, B, C, D, E, but they're still on track to Z or Z, for my other listeners on this side of the channel, this side <laughs> of the pond. And I think that's one of the most powerful things now that leaders really need to understand and get to grips with and how you evolve from that 20th century thinking to what is essential in the 21st century. Absolutely. And I love that idea of iterative decision-making. It's so needed today because the world is changing. We wake up every morning and the world has changed. And again, I'll go back to something that I talked about earlier. To be able to do that, to be able to be an iterative thinker like that, to recognize that your job as a leader, as a decider is never done, requires looking at decision-making as a practice rather than a process. Yeah. So develop that practice, develop that decision-making practice, become a thinking leader. That's why I call this podcast The Thinking Leader, is because as I, as I, I wrote in our tagline that you hear at the beginning of every episode, bad leaders react, good leaders plan, and great leaders think. And I'll add something to that. The greatest leaders think differently. The greatest leaders think outside the box. The greatest leaders think disruptively. And red team thinking is designed to enable and encourage that sort of thinking, that sort of disruptive thinking. And I mean disruptive in a good way because it's better to disrupt yourself than to wait for someone else to disrupt you. And right now, there's not a single leader who's listening to this who doesn't have people in their organization with great ideas that are just waiting to be heard. There isn't a single leader that couldn't do better. We never crack the code. We make good decisions if we're lucky. We make great decisions if we're really lucky, but we have to keep doing that. The game is never over. The game is never over. Yeah. And none of this means you're sat in a room thinking and procrastinating. This is all a precursor to action, isn't it? It's this decision making that's the outcome here. We're not saying we're going to just pontificate and think. And, and the way you talked about it, when it becomes a practice, this doesn't take days and days of planning. Some of these things can be done in minutes, hours. And I, and I know, you know, when we talk about agile transformations, big scale planning and delivery, how often do you see these major programs that cost millions and sometimes billions? And I've been in the MOD and your side in the DOD, we've seen how often these programs are very rarely, in fact, ever come in on time, on budget. And it's often through a lack of planning. They rush in. They don't think. And if you just take that initial time up front, that slow down to speed up concept, then, you know, if your meandering path takes you five degrees off each time, but you kick yourself back in, then you're going to come in close enough on target. But if you don't spend that time, if you barrel into these things and your team aren't understanding where you're going as well, then you're going to be so off course, it's almost unrecoverable at points. 
So taking that time up front, and it doesn't have to be long, to align people, to get their input, to get them engaged and taking ownership. And as I said before, you can let go of those reins and it's going in the direction you need it to go in at the rate of pace, at the rate of change, with that adaptability as you progress and the resilience to when you do get hit by something, you get up and you bounce back because you've been aware of it coming. You've seen those threats and you're ready, but also as you said it right up front, you're also seeking opportunities. And I think that's where so many, and we've seen this and talked about it with the COVID era, so many organizations have gone into that dark, dark phase of threats. Everything's out there. The boogeyman's coming for me. And when you're in that phase, you're not seeing the opportunities. They could be staring you in the face, but you can't see it because you're in a different mindset. And if you don't grab those opportunities and the successful companies are the ones that do, then it doesn't matter how hard you work, how much you try and change, you're going to miss the golden nugget as it floats by. Oh, you're so right, Marcus. You're so right. And gosh, we could we could talk all day about this. We could talk all day and all this. night about this. You know, I can't tell you how many times when I've been interviewing folks, some of the great thought leaders we've had on like Dr. Gary Klein, Dave Snowden, some of the, the great authors like Barry O'Reilly, some of the great business leaders like Alan Mulally, how often during those interviews, I've said, gosh, I wish Marcus was here. I wish, uh, I know he'd have something really interesting to say about this. And uh, I think we should think about doing this differently going forward. I think we should think about a different format for the thinking leader in 2022 that brings both of us in and makes both of us part of the conversation with our guest. So let's put our heads together and think on that. What do you think? I'm game for that. As you said, we are on dog food. We, we see what's working and we make it work better. And, and I, and I think it's a, uh, it's the conversation that stimulates our listeners and it stimulates us. I mean, I just love talking about this stuff and the, rabbit holes we go down the riffing off of each other with some of these topics and certainly with some of the guests we've had on i'd love to have been asking the questions as i've been listening myself writing them down because it's just such a fascinating topic and, and the thing with this and i think ellie cloaken of our rating news mentioned this a while ago what this capability is it's agnostic by sector a level role i do this with my kids i do it on the sports field i do it when i go shopping planning a holiday i do it at work and I think that's the appeal about this. It's relevant to anybody and everybody. I'm game. Count me in. All right. Well, folks, we're going to take some time off for the holidays here. When we come back in 2022, I think things are going to be a bit different. Stay tuned. Thank you for listening to the Thinking Leader Podcast, sponsored by Red Team Thinking. To subscribe to Bryce's free newsletter, visit his website, brycehoffman.com. And don't forget to follow Bryce on social media. You can find him on LinkedIn and Twitter at Bryce Hoffman, all one word. That's B-R-Y-C-E-H-O-F-F-M-A-N. And to learn more about Bryce's company, Red Team Thinking, visit us at redteamthinking.com. <laughs>